For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Tonight's chant will be the Metta Sutta, and we will begin with the repentance verse. Oh, sorry, everyone. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down. During all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites, one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom, 
with full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in China, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. Wisdom beyond wisdom. Mahaprajna paramita. Tonight's speaker will be David Weiner, who I will give to Tigan to introduce. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Uh, so uh, David Weiner has been practicing at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, began practicing here numbers of years ago. Uh, back, back in the old days when we had a temple on Irving Park Road, David was a very reliable doan and greeter and assistant tenso during all the sittings. Uh, and I'm really happy to have David giving the talk tonight. Thank you, David. Just realized I had to unmute myself before I talk. So thank you, Tigan. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read this just because I want to be a little, make sure I have this right in my own sense of Rightness, Japanese rightness. Um, in the summer of 2002, my sister passed away, and my cousin Albert flew in from Berkeley for the memorial service and stayed with my wife and I for a few days. Albert was a longtime Zen practitioner, and we talked about Buddhism and my practice of Blackfoot shamanism. In some ways, they were very similar specifically in interrelatedness. When a Blackfoot stands, stands up and speaks before a council, he always says, Okine Kasokawa, which means in the name of all our relations, and that the whole tribe is related to the buffalo, the grass, the birds that fly, all the animals. And so that interrelatedness was something I understood. I asked Albert for a book so I could learn more about Buddhism, and Albert sent me the book, The Issue at Hand, by Gil Fonsdell, who is in the East Bay area. On page three were the Four Noble Truths, and I was literally floored. 
My wife and I were going through our divorce, and I saw how I was clinging to my marriage and how my clinging was a source of suffering. Suddenly, I was hooked, hooked on Buddhism. And Buddhism helped me understand and let go of my suffering. A few days later, I called Albert and asked him for the name of a teacher in the Chicago area, and he gave me Tigan's name and phone number. And so here I am, or so I thought. Though I had read the Four Noble Truths, in reality, I had only read the first three and ignored the fourth truth that mentions the Eightfold Path. Though I understood the precepts, read Zen mind, beginner's mind, and being upright, and then took Jukai about three years ago, the Eightfold Path was still something in a distance. Then something changed. Perhaps it was due to my studying to become a hospice chaplain, or perhaps seeing patients on a volunteer basis, or going back to grad school for my Master's of Divinity and learning about Christianity. But something changed. Suddenly my smugness from being a Blackfoot pipe carrier and already knowing this stuff about interrelatedness, that smugness disappeared. Now I had more questions than answers. I began reading on my own and asked Tygen about studying the fourth noble truth, that is the Eightfold Path. And so I took Paula's class, Paula Lazar from our Sangha, I took her class on the Eightfold Path last year. I still have more questions than answers, but I now feel a direction. What I didn't notice in my study of the Eightfold Path was something unexpected. And at the time, answered the question, what does one do off cushion? I found, from my perspective, that four of the folds were very physical in nature, while the other four were more cerebral, more cognitive in nature. Right thought right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration are all cerebral in nature. They are contemplative. Right speech, right action, right livelihood are clearly physical in nature. And to my mind, so is right view, or some people call it right understanding. For me, right view starts with cognition, but requires the use of my senses. My eyes as I see the sky, see a person, see a tree. My ears as I hear a bird sing or a person talk. My sense of touch as I feel the skin, as I feel the sun on my skin or a downpour dousing me. My tongue as I taste the food I eat. My nose as I smell a flower or walk into a porta potty. All physical manifestations of right view, of interdependence, impermanence, no fixed self, and beneficial action. Right understanding is the first fold of the eightfold path. 
right speech is the third. And by its action, it is the second physical path. Right speech is composed of four main components. The first of which is abstaining from lying. To lie is not to tell the truth. And it is, in a way, an attempt to change reality. I don't like the reality I'm facing or I'm being forced to face. So I will try to change it, to conform it to my well-being. To embrace the truth is to see clearly and accept reality as it is and abandon the fixed self. In the words I utter, I am either interdependent or beneficial or separate and self-indulgent. I can manifest right view in my speech when I am off cushion or I could turn my back on it. I do have one question for Tygen, however, that is hopefully you'll answer after my talk, and that is about withholding information. If I withhold information, here's the question for all of us. If I withhold information in order to fool someone or trick them, that I see as a lie. That's a lie. But if my intent is to spare suffering, as what happened to me recently when an overweight and unattractive person asked me, how do I look? And I responded truthfully, you have a wonderful smile. Is that lying? You know, I withheld a little bit. I held back a little bit. So that's the, a question I'm, I'm wrestling with a little bit. But continuing on to the second component of right speech. From right speech is to abstain from tail-bearing. What is said here is not said there. What is said there is not said here. This component is about concord, of harmony, of interdependence, and being present. There is no gain, no self-centric agenda that is at the heart of gossip. No attempt to gain stature or dominance. We are where we are in the concord of the present. The third component of right speech is abstaining from harsh speech which, like lying and tail-bearing, reflects separation and self-indulgence. Rather than rancor, our speech should come from our undisturbed mind, be friendly, be sympathetic, be heartful, contain love, and be free of hidden malice. I had a great example of this at work a little more than a year ago. As a printing salesperson, I bring jobs to my production coordinator who processes my projects through the shop. Some of my jobs were being delayed, and I straightforwardly asked my coordinator, what's going on? And he looked at me as if the weight of the world was on his shoulders and said, man, then it dawned on me the weight of the world really was on his shoulders and spears were being thrown at him from every direction. 
suddenly I softened. Here was a being with whom I'm connected and interdependent. In a softer and friendlier voice, I said, you really do have a lot on your plate, don't you? How can I help you? His words came rushing out like a torrent. Everyone was, quote, on his butt. The salespeople, the press crew, the general manager. It was sad seeing him so utterly lost and frustrated. With compassion as my base, I asked him what he needed from me, how I could ease his way. His face changed immediately. We were no longer dueling selves, but interdependent beings in a shared reality. The question became, how could we become beneficial to each other? And at that moment, changed our relationship ever since. By my giving up my self-centric goals, goals that saw no connection with him as a living being, we achieved a connectedness that has stayed with us both and actually, not ironically, improved the workflow of my projects and formed the friendship at the same time. An example of right view This is an example of right view manifesting itself off cushion through right speech. The last component of right speech is abstaining from vain speech. This is not only reflective of the first fold of the eightfold path, interdependence, no fixed self, but is directly connected to the sixth and seventh precepts, not dwelling on the faults of others, and not praising oneself above or at the expense of others. Again, separation, self-indulgence, and fixed self. How can I be truly connected to you if I am placing myself above you? Quite honestly, this is where my own personal work lies. I like to seek praise for my own separate self, but very insecure fixed self. This is what I learned about myself in studying right speech. Something came to me as I wrote this talk. I ask you to notice that I used the words connected with rather than connected to. Two has the implication of separateness from one to another, yet with has inherent in it the sense of connection, of togetherness. Even while writing this, this, this talk, I became aware of the little things that can help our interrelatedness, little habitual habits, yet they reflect my closeness or your closeness to my or to your distance from right understanding. That is right speech. Right action, in its own words, is another aspect manifesting right understanding when we are off cushion. The three main components of right action, as I understand it, are no killing, no stealing, and no unlawful intercourse. The same as the first three grave precepts. 
in their mundane form or surface form, they all manifest right view, right understanding while we are off cushion. In their super mundane or deeper meaning, they are seen wrong as wrong, right as right, which is right understanding. They become the lack of desire, the effort to overcome, and thus become the part of the eightfold path that is called right effort. They become the attentive mind that leads to right mindfulness, the seventh fold in the eighth fold path. So that is right action as part of the eightfold path. And the last the last physical fold of the eightfold path is right livelihood. And it has five clear principles. No deceit, no treachery, no soothsaying, no trickery, and no usury. These principles all have the underlying principle of what some schools of Zen call the first pure precept, do no harm. In our modern world, four are easily understandable. We can all agree that deceit, treachery, trickery, and usury are not harmonious in creating and building a world of interconnectedness. Susan is a little bit of an outlier. And I suppose, I do not know for sure, I am only speculating, that Susan is an attempt to control reality, to possibly change it. It is a desire to know the future rather than let the future be the future. It is tied to the fixed image of the self rather than selflessness. Perhaps once again, Tigan, you could clarify this after I'm finished. What about Susan? As for specific livelihoods or professions, this would include uh, uh, livelihoods that are prohibited, would be arms trade, soldier, slave trade, any harming of animals, be it a hunter, fisherman, or butcher, and anything related to intoxication or manufacture of poisons. The important part of, in my estimation, however, is in the four types of action, deceit, treachery, trickery, and usury, all of which are manifestations of the fixed self as compared to interconnectedness, of self-indulgence as compared to benefice. As a printer, my profession may not be on the, quote, prohibited list, yet it is my duty as a disciple of Buddha to do my work openly, honestly, and without trickery or deceit, to tell the truth, to tell a client that a job will be late, that something has gone wrong, even if it means losing that client. So these are the ideas I wanted to share with you, my Sangha, tonight about the Eightfold Path. There's a lot here in a very short Dharma talk. As part of Paula's class, we had to read a chapter a week before we met, and then spent another two hours going each of the each of the folds. So I said a lot tonight in a short time. 
So thank you. Uh, that class was a step forward for me in my practice. And I hope that the material I presented tonight will be a similar step forward for you that it provided insight into the keystone of our practice, right understanding, and provided you with a way to manifest right understanding both on and off your cushion. Thank you for listening. Thank you, David. Uh, You asked me a question or two during that, so I'll try and respond. But first, I, I appreciate that you talked about right understanding or right view as a physical practice. Uh, I think that's right, that that it's not just some mental understanding. It's actually how do we uh, feel, uh, sense, uh, how are we aware of things uh, physically. So uh, that's interesting. I could say more about right view, but your basic question, your first question was about Speaking truth, um, withholding, and, and uh, n- you know, not lying, and um, and you were asking about withholding information, and is that uh, untruth? And you sort of answered your own question. Uh, the The point is, and this applies to all of the eightfold path and all of the precepts and all of the paramitas. Uh, right intention. Uh, what is your intention? And so you, and so you know, you very clearly described uh, not sharing information uh, that would be uh, hurtful. Uh, so it's not that you have to reveal everything uh, that you're aware of or that you're thinking in any moment, because actually one cannot do that. But if you have information, uh, you know, the, the example of somebody asking you. What they thought, what you know, how how she looked, or whatever, um, or, uh, or how he looked. Uh, you know, you, what you said was was exactly right. What's the intention? Are you are you going to uh, uh, make someone feel bad, or are you going to be helpful to them? That that intention part is it goes with all of these eightfold paths. The thing you were talking about about. Um, uh, I'm thinking of it in terms of the precepts. So, uh, but uh, the precept about not speaking of the faults of others, one can talk about something that's happening or that ha- has happened in you know in your workplace or you know in some immediate se- sense or in the world, and not talk about it in terms of blame, but talk about it in terms of well, how do I help? And you gave a very good example with your friend at, at the uh, at where you work and you asked him how you could help and that's exactly that's exactly it what is the intention when we try and do all of these practices are we uh, trying to be helpful or are or are we willing to just be uh, cause harm or 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 um, name call or something like that so um Anyway, I appreciate your uh, going through uh, this eightfold path, and uh, uh, other people probably have comments or questions as well. So, anyone who has, uh, you know, a comment or question, please for for David, please uh, or response to, please uh, you know, raise your hand and, and uh, feel free. 
Uh, Ed. All right, thanks, David. That was that was great. It's always nice to hear your voice. It's always nice to see you. And it always reminds me of that Thai-Italian fusion dish you did <laughs> at um, Kathy, Kathy Bingham's house. It was amazing. I even was bragging to someone about it recently. I mean, I think it might have been yesterday. So... As far as I'm concerned, all you got to do is make that dish. You don't have to subscribe to any other law in the world. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you gave me this idea because for many, many years I worked in construction. And at all job sites, there's rules and regulations of the site, which are generally prescriptive, you know. And really, it would be better to take that down and put up just the eight noble truths, Upon any any person entrance, they must comply with that, and we would live in a, we would live, we would have a much more harmonious construction site. Thank you for your your deliberation of the these truths. Thank you, Ed. Any other responses? If not, I can add some things, but I, yeah, David Ray. David, thanks so much for your talk. And it was great to hear you talk and to think about that course that we did together and also to think about our early conversations when my experience of uh, being at the beginning of going through a divorce and very much clinging to my marriage and saying, you know, maybe things <laughs> maybe things are going to work out when it was very clear indeed that they were not going to work out. So I I really um I really appreciate hearing that. And so maybe I mean and and also you and I have have in common that that we you know we both did that version of men's work and you went really far in the in that shamanic path and I did a little bit of that. Um, so. I, I'd like to hear, like, what, what, what do you think is the relationship between? I mean, somebody could hear the eightfold path and say, "Wow, that sounds like a, that sounds like a whole lot of rules," and that sounds like, who, who, like, whoever is going to live up to that, they really just they've got to know what's what, like, because everybody thinks they've got right understanding, don't they? I mean, that that's the trouble. Like, I'm afraid if you if you put the if you put that up on a construction site, I'm afraid that a lot of guys would say, well, yeah, I'm telling you what to do and I have got right understanding and my way to do it is right action. So so I'm I'm not I'm not sure it would necessarily bring peace and harmony. So I'd like to hear you like well, what do you think is the relationship between not knowing on the one hand, you know, which we talk about a lot, and then and then, you know, the eightfold path, which is I guess sort of, you know, old school old school Buddhism that kind of sounds like Somebody could think it sounds like commandments, but I take it that it's not. Yeah. Um, thank you, David, uh, for your question. Um, it took me close to eight years to finally reach the Eightfold Path. You know, it's not something you take on lightly, I don't think. I don't think. Uh, but it has to be done with intent. And then what I learned from from my study is again, how could I apply these to my regular everyday life? And that's what really stood out for me was, you know, we always talk about what we could do off cushion or on cushion, you know, and I think 
the other four re- have helped me focus on, you know, co- right concentration, especially, but right mindfulness and right effort, you know, and right thought all help me focus when I am in the Zazen and all make me bring me closer to just being here in a moment and not go wandering off somewhere and, and that. So those are helpful, but I think it's something that has to be done over time. And it may seem daunting at first, but if only to get the very first one of right understanding of, you know, of no fixed self, you know, of beneficence, you know, of interconnectedness, interrelationships. If you can do that, then you have the essence and you can grow from there. And then it's a matter of taking the steps farther, going to thought, going to speech, going to uh, action, going to livelihood, effort, you know, mindfulness, concentration or practice. Then it becomes, then they, they make sense. But you have to have what I see is the very first one is is key. And that's the the very beginning. And that's the one, Ed, that should go up because you're talking about no fixed self. You know, that you're and you're being beneficent. You know, you're not trying to tell people, you're not trying to put people down, you're trying to help other people. Uh those are the ones that have to go up, and those are the ones that have to be remembered. Is that yeah, that's super helpful. I think I'm hearing you say that really the Eightfold Path is for, I mean, it makes sense when, when, when someone is on the, on the path, that, that outside the path it might sound nonsensical or somebody might have their own, you know, idiosyncratic understanding. Um, that's really helpful that, it, that, that the Eightfold Path, that that teaching is for someone who is seeking the way. That's helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, David and David. I uh, just want to add a little bit to that first one that you're talking about, David, uh, right understanding. Sometimes it's uh, translated as right view. And part of that, big part of that is, uh, as I think you were saying, that it's not about um, you know telling everybody else that you have the right understanding, but it's, about, it's also about listening. Yeah. So right view is about hearing others hearing the so-called others perspective because we are because we are interconnected so you so to really you know so that's the bodhisattva compassion is the one who listens so right view means um knowing that you don't have all the answers (laughs) is one way to put it uh that that as you said at the beginning that you have questions and being it's not that you accept and believe you know, dogmatically everything that everybody else says, but that you listen and that you're aware of other perspectives. So that's that that's how to connect the right understanding you're emphasizing with um, not knowing, not having, a, not being dogmatic. So, yeah, yeah, just to add that. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of like, which I didn't mention, but it's kind of like not having a fixed view, you know, and in some of the books I've read before they bring anything else up, they said, that number one was not having a fixed view. That was the first thing of, of right under uh, understanding. When I heard, uh, I was at a seminar and I, we heard Bernie Glassman in a live, you know, teleconference call 
And he says, no fixed views. What I say today might not be true tomorrow. <laughs> and and uh, so that is true. So it's a matter of not having a fixed view, which means that you listen. That listening is required. That part of right speech is listening. You know, so thank you very much for bringing that up. I could have had that in, the, in, my, in my talk, but thank you. Thank you. Other comments, questions, perspectives? Matt. Douglas, did you have something? I saw your hand up. I was kind of waiting for you to go. Are you all right? Okay. Go ahead. Thank you, Douglas. Um, I just want to build on what David and David were talking about just now. Um, I, too, uh, was introduced to Buddhism kind of with the traditional stuff, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And um, I didn't realize how much baggage I was bringing to all that. (laughs) I mean, whether it's Christianity or what, but I felt like I had to figure it out. And it sounded pretty cool, but it's like, yeah, the right livelihood, you know, the right speech. That's for other people. It's not for me, you know. And then... um, I don't know what it is, but it is that fixed view, that non-self. And I did it, I, I refined my understanding through Zazen. I think you can do it other ways, but Zazen's pretty helpful. <laughs> you know, you do it long enough, it breaks you down. <laughs> it breaks down this uh, ego you have that you have it figured out, the construction workers who have it figured out, right? Maybe the signs should say, sit Zazen <laughs> for like 10, 20, 30 years. <laughs> You know, because, yeah, we all think we have it figured out, even like the good Buddhist who's just, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, do the Eightfold Path. Oh, but I don't want to do right livelihood because, you know, I, I really like my job. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious, David uh, Weiner, if you have anything to say about this or Tigan or anyone, um, what would the Buddhists say about right livelihood today, right? I mean, because a lot of this livelihood wasn't around, you know, 2,500 years ago. I really think we need to figure it out for ourselves. You know, I, I don't think we can just say, well, I'm not working for a gun manufacturer, alcohol manufacturer, like a butcher or something. I'm good to go. I think we need to be a little bit more, you know, in a little bit more investigation than that. So, David, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, thank you. Uh, I think I, I in, in my talk, I, I mentioned that it's not so much the actual professions, but the, the principles of you know of treachery, of uh, of trickery, of deceit, you know, and uh, and of usury or usury, as some people say. Um, those I think could be applicable to, to our our modern world, and that winds up, if I may say, in my my purview with the financial institutions that we have running now and the large co- corporations that we have running now that are all just for profit. They're all just trickery and when it comes to taxes. And it's treachery because of the way they treat, uh, they treat people in, within their corporations. Any of that, I think, is equitable. You know, it's deceitful to, to say one thing and do another uh, so all of those are applicable to right livelihood in any of, like I say, for me as a, as a printing salesman, you know, um, last Wednesday I had to tell a client that a job supposed to go out Monday went out Wednesday. And, you know, and I knew that if I said it, you know, I, I'm kind of like 
maybe cutting my own throat, but it's true. And she was going to find out eventually anyhow, you know, but it's, it's not besides the point. I was disappointed that it didn't go out and I had to let her know. And that's the honesty that we have to have and the openness we have to have in our, all of our professions, whether it be, you know, being a teacher at a school or being a worker at a construction site or working as a lawyer or, you know, any of those, we all need to have that, those principles in our, in our heart with, as we work or the avoidance of those negative principles in our heart. That makes sense. I'll just add briefly that I think I've thought of right livelihood as the most important of the eightfold path in ter- in modern context and the most challenging because we're all, because we're also interconnected we are connected to you know the the things that cause harm i mean that's to me that's the the issue what causes harm what what supports your self awareness also um, and we're all we're all caught up in this web of you know using electricity and fossil fuels of uh paying taxes which support militarism uh it's it's very challenging so i think we need to think we need to think uh in detail about right livelihood and how that fits in the modern world so thank you for the question douglas did you have something not really but i i appreciate you talking about this tonight david because um, a lot of us, when we come to Zen, sort of leapfrog over these kinds of things that are not just, I mean, they're, they're the sort of thing that you, I think it's appropriate to lay a foundation with studying the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. And they're, as you're saying, they're, they're things that are valid throughout your life and throughout your practice forever. Um, and I think that they're, they're helpful to let, create a framework for how you think about things and how you act. And so I appreciate your talking about that tonight. Thank you, Douglas. Yeah, I've I've been sitting now since uh, the end of 2012, because I remember my wife and I started our official divorce in 2013. And I started just before that. And... uh, and I've been coasting. Um, you know, I did some all-day seishins and I did work and everything, but my practice was really coasting. And it, something changed. And I think in part it was going to school and seeing patients, you know, on a, as, as, as a chaplain changed me. It made me think of, th- I had to look at things now. I'm not familiar with this. How do I do this? And opened a whole new path and that and just by that it opened me up and I said okay I want to learn more about the practice that I'm actually doing I don't want to just be cruising through it anymore I want to dig a little deeper I want to find more and the eightfold path was very clear right it was right there in front of me and that's when I asked Tigan about you know studying the eightfold path and then we came up with the class with Paula 
and now I feel my practice is, is much deeper, much more meaningful. And so what you're saying about creating a foundation, I think is very true. Ruben. Thank you for your talk, David. Thank you, Ruben. Something, uh, something that was, has been coming up for me as I'm, I'm listening and I was, was listening is uh, this differentiation between, um, I think I heard you say mental and physical um, folds. And, you know, my experience has been <laughs> that, like, on the one hand, I study them, all of them. On the other hand, I practice each one of them. And, like, in the practicing of them, there's a physical embodiment there, even even sati, like um, mindfulness, the, the body, like coming to life as I am in, in, in the moment, right? As I'm here. Um, I just want to, to bring that forward that I think um, that's been a big part of my practice, the embodiment mm -hmm. of, the, of these. Um, that's, that's, that's what's there. Thank you. Thank you, Ruben. Uh, I think that's, I see it more basically because uh, as far as the, those three are so clearly physical, speech, action, and livelihood are just, you know, that's physical action. But I agree with you. There's sometimes I, I'm going back and forth with the different practices sometimes, the, the, the folds, and maybe I should do one and just concentrate on it and <laughs> work my way down. But I, I've, in the book that I was reading, doing right concentration and and seeing myself in concentration is part of one of the exercises to see yourself as already dead, to see your corpse and to see it, you know, fall away and go into nothingness eventually. You know, it goes through nine cemetery steps, they, they call them. And boy, you know... I, I physically felt that, <laughs> you know, my skin was tingling on that. <laughs> so there was a physical response, but at the same time, it wasn't the same as my talking to you right now. So I, I agree with you. There is physical, physical responses in the body. Um, it's just that from my perspective, having not done those deeper uh, practices enough and not having experienced them enough, I don't have the same awareness that you have of feeling them more in my body than I do. You know, so. Um, if I may, I, I see that Caitlin is here, but I can't really see you, Caitlin. It's dark. I just wondered if you had any comments. If you're there. <laughs> Caitlin? I see a head shake no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Glad you're here, Caitlin. Uh, any other comments or responses? Alex? Thank you, David, for the talk. Um, it's always wonderful to hear from another person studying chaplaincy. Um, I guess just to, to briefly comment on this question that sort of has been driving a lot of this question of, you know, is it ever, what does it mean to lie? I mean, can, can we withhold truth? Is that okay? The first place that my mind went when you asked that question was thinking about 
um, this idea of upaya, skillful means, and the fact that um, you know the Buddha taught different things to different people. He did what was useful for people, and not necessarily what was one hundred percent capital F fact. Um, that was just something I was thinking about. I don't know if you have anything to comment about that, about this idea of skillful means. To be honest, I don't have any comment, and I'm not really learned enough in that area to to make it, to make a comment that would have any any foundation to it. I know I know the term skillful means, and I and you know I see it and I practice it in the sense of my chaplaincy that that I that I've learned through uh, the coursework I do, I've done and through my actual being with patients. You know, you learn. But as far as Buddhism, Buddhism goes and uh, skillful means, I am not familiar enough or knowledgeable enough to make any comment on that. Um, I know there are some things about Buddha that are, you know, uh, for me, the fact that he had to be asked three times before he let Mahaprajapatati come into the Sangha is something that's a little bit of a... Uh, a craw, you know, and stuck in my craw, but uh, um, at the same time, I can understand that at the time he was living, he was trying to reform Hinduism in a book that I read, and letting women in would stop <laughs> his reform of Hinduism right in his tracks, <laughs> and so, like you say, he uses skillful means and eventually let him in, but. I don't know about the skillful means and playing with, you know, telling one set of capital F facts to somebody and another set of capital F facts to somebody else. I I have no knowledge of that. So my apologies. No need to apologize. Thank you. Uh, David, if I may, I have to disagree with you. Uh, Skillful means in in Buddhism uh, is about trying to be helpful to, as, as Alex said, to the person you're with and making mistakes and being willing to make mistakes. So through your chaplaincy practice, you actually have a lot of experience of uh, attempts at how to be skillful with different people. And we've taught you and I have talked about it, about some of those examples. So, um, uh, yeah, I, maybe you and I could talk more about skillful means because you, you actually know more about it than you realize. Okay. Thank you. Well, any last comments or questions or responses or anything? Any uh, cl- closing words, David? I just want to thank you, thank everybody, and thank you for your questions and for for your listening. Uh, I, I truly appreciate it. And uh, to be honest, I was a little nervous because this was my first Dharma talk, so I just kind of read <laughs> instead of uh, speaking more contemporaneously. Um, but thank you. Thank you for your patience, for your listening, for your comments. Uh, uh, they all mean a lot to me, so truly. So thank you. There are experienced Dharma teachers who write out their, their uh, talks ahead of time. And 
read them, although, uh, like, for example, Norman Fisher is skillful enough to not look like he's reading his talks. <laughs> so if there's nothing else, then, uh, Alex, maybe we could do our closing for Bodhisattva vows, and then we can have uh, announcements. I will share my screen. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. <laughs>